I'm Damian Willis, and this is The Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News, a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the biggest stories of the week. In this week's episode, we're talking to Algernon DeMassa. Algernon has been a reporter for The Sun News since 2018. Before that, he was at the dimming headlights. Earlier this month, Algernon returned to the headlight as the newspaper's editor-in-chief. The headlight was recently purchased from Gannett by the Silver City Independent Publishing Company, which owns the Silver City Daily Press and Independent. During his time in Las Cruces, Algernon was a great asset to our newsroom and to our community. He's not one to shy away from a big, hard-to-report story, particularly if the reporting is of vital public interest. And during his time at the Sun News, he reported a great number of genuinely impactful stories. This week, we're grateful to be joined by Algernon. First, Algernon, thanks for coming back to join us this week on The Reporter's Notebook. Oh, what is it now? (laughs) Just uh, for a little context for our listeners, can you start just by giving us a brief summary of the thousand lives you lived before falling into a career in journalism? (laughs) So, um, yeah, my first career was in the performing arts. I was actually a stage actor for a meager living in the 1990s and 2000s. After I became a family man, I was in education for a while. There was a period where I was living a very religious life. I was in Zen centers and monasteries and almost became a monk, uh, became a teacher for a bit. And through a series of accidents, I don't know if I really need to summarize it all, uh, I went from being a freelance columnist to a news reporter here in New Mexico, actually at the Deming Headlight. And then for four and a half years, I was at the Las Cruces Sun News, which came to an end this week as I took over as editor of the newly independent, locally owned Deming Headlight. I saw a request. Uh, I want to dive a little bit deeper into one aspect of that. I saw a request on uh, Twitter as recently as this morning uh, from someone who wanted to know more about your your time spent cooking in a Zendo. <laughs> right. Tell, well, tell us that about was, that. That was kind of how I earned my keep for a while. So for a bit, I, I lived on very little money and I was residing at Zen centers as a lay person, but intermingled with uh, people living a monastic life in a Korean American Zen Buddhist school, I guess. And that was and in that was in California. That was in Rhode Island. It was in Cambridge, Mass, where I lived for a bit. Uh, the monastery where I used to hang out, hang out for long retreats, uh, going as much as ninety days at a time without talking, was in Northern Rhode Island. And yes, I I actually ran a Zen center for a hot minute in Los Angeles, California. My my organization, once I took on some robes and took some vows, started giving me things to do. And they sent me to Los Angeles for a couple of years, which turned into seven, uh, helping out at a Zen center near the Miracle Mile in L.A. Fantastic. 
So, uh, Rashad, if you're listening, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> There's the answer. And you kind of said that it was through a series of, of uh, accidents. Uh, how, how did you end up in dimming? Yeah, I, I, so when I was in LA, I met my wife and we became parents and we came back to Deming because that was her hometown. And I got a job at a local elementary school, Torres Elementary represent and, uh, came here and the, actually this sounds a little corny, but the first full day I was in town, I went looking for the local paper because I've been a newspaper guy all my life. I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, when we still got a morning and evening newspaper. And the first words I ever had in print was a letter to the editor in the Providence journal when I was, I think I was an adolescent. And so I went looking for the paper, found the Demi headlight. And one of the things I noticed as I started getting a subscription to it was that there was a lot of wire content, sort of national columnists and feeds, not a whole lot of local voices on the opinion page. So I started I I can write. I've always you know, my my parents were both writers. So I writing is just sort of a natural thing for me. So I started once a month sending something in just volunteer free, just sending. Yeah, I'd send in 700 words and they would run it. So once a month I would appear in the paper. So I became known as a local columnist simply because I sent stuff and they needed it. So <laughs> you regularly uh, submitted and they needed it. So they ran it. So they ran it. And that's how I became a columnist. <laughs> and, uh, this went on unt- uh, for several years until finally they just asked me to do a weekly column and paid me a little bit. And so that's how I became a paid columnist for the paper. A little more time went by. So that's 2014. And then in 2017, when the Deming headlight was down to one editor and one reporter, the one staff reporter got a job in Taos and left. And so the news director at the time, Sylvia Ulloa, said, hey, Al, I like your columns. I know you can write. And I heard you recently got laid off from your job, which was true. I, by this time, was at New Mexico State University teaching in the Creative Media Institute, and there were cutbacks in 2016, and uh, my department... Was that at a time when uh, Sylvia was also an an adjunct professor? I don't know that. Okay. Um, I, I just knew her as the news director at the Las Cruces Sun News and the Deming Headlight, because they were both owned by Gannett. Right. And I I had been teaching at NMSU and the Creative Media Institute, but there were some severe budget cutbacks and my department head had to cut me. So I was actually unemployed for the first time in my life. And Sylvia Ulloa said, do you want to try being a reporter for a little while as a temp until we find somebody, you know, find a real journalist to take the job? (laughs) I said, sure. (laughs) And, And I'm still doing it. So. That's uh, it's it's been a quite a good temp job. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) So I was a general assignment reporter doing schools, business, city government, uh, pretty much everything except sports. And I once covered a rodeo. Do you do you want to tell us the story about uh, your first day on the job? Oh, this is a great story. So I have no background in journalism, as is now very clear to anybody listening. I got hired as a reporter. Uh, I 
showed up for my first day on the job where I met Bill Armendariz. Bill Armendariz is a he started at the headlight as a sports reporter 40 some years ago. I mean, he's just he, he goes back to the days of printing presses in the building. And he looked at me, said, oh, there you are. And he handed me a camera and said, there's a groundbreaking for a new port of entry down in Columbus. Want you to go down there, get interviews with any Congress people who are there, get pictures, come back, file your story and your pictures by five. And that was my training. <laughs> I didn't even have a laptop computer at this point, right? Like, I, right. I, I I sort of knew which way to point the camera. I, I got that right. <laughs> you, you were looking. You were looking uh, into the right end of it, anyway. I think so. I seem to remember my pictures ending up in print. So, yeah, it was. It was. I went down there with a pencil and a notebook, and and just decided I would need to figure it out. And uh, as far as you know, kind of that trial by fire. How did that work out for you? It worked out fine. I, I mean, I think that I think what has served me well is that through my education and varied life experiences, I'm a person who's really curious and I can write, I can ask questions. I know what I know what I want to know about. I, I kind of because of I grew up reading newspapers, I have the perspective of a newspaper reader and I know the questions that I would want answered if I was reading. And so I approached it as a as a writer and a lifelong newspaper reader and a curious person. And that has served me well and allowed me to cover a lot of different things. And I just tried to learn as quickly as I could by reading other people's work obsessively and uh, learning about leads, learning about uh, learning about different angles, learning about different public records that can help uh, construct a narrative and, and fill in holes in the reporting. And so as well as interview techniques and just I'm, I still think of myself as a student who's just trying to soak in everything like a sponge as quickly as I could. And now I'm back in that same position because I'm an editor and I have to learn how to do that somehow. Right, right. This might actually be a good time to to bring into the conversation your philosophy. Uh, what draws you to stories? Oh, there's a, there's a joke. There's, we have a long-standing joke in the newsroom, and and have uh, for is, years. Which is that I'm very drawn to stories that amuse me and uh, developments that amuse me. And uh, if it, you know, this part of my selection process is going with whatever development is most amusing to me. Uh, I, I don't take that too seriously, but, but yeah, a lot of things that I end up writing about come about simply because there's something that strikes me as amusing or ironic and I pursue it and develop that. And <laughs> that ends up in my reporting. There, there is something to be said for it though, because you know, if it amuses you, it, it, it probably will be uh, interesting and amusing to, to readers too. I certainly hope so. I mean, I do have some tastes that are very niche and unusual, like not everybody necessarily shares my interest in uh, handwritten letters or bow ties or things like that. But certainly from a news angle, when I'm writing about politics, I'm very conscious of the theatricality and the kind of retail aspect of it. And I'm writing for an audience that in one way or another is kind of at the mercy of this system. And I try to approach it 
giving them good information and also approaching it like a theater critic. So what do you mean by that? <laughs> you, you just stopped me dead in my tracks. What do you mean by uh, like a theater critic? So there is a great deal of theatric. So, for instance, you know, we're talking on Veterans Day and I, I just before this conversation was attending a Veterans Day service, which which is a an occasion that includes many theatrical elements. And, you know, I'm coming as a as a theater person. I don't say that with any sense of like pejorative or or cheapening of the event. It's important. It matters. Um, the 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 displaying of the colors, the, the use of music like taps and 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 patriotic songs is all used to convey a strongly sensual experience of what it means to recognize service in the armed forces. And so, I mean, you could just talk about it, but using music, uniform, displays of colors and symbols matters. We have an analog in our politics as well. There are theatrical aspects of our politics that are used to not just appeal to our ideas and our ethical principles, but also to our emotions for, for good and for ill, I think. And so I try to really point to how those things are used when I'm reporting, because it's not just proposals about policy. I think we all understand this. It's uh, We just got through an election cycle where there was a lot of messaging about what America could be what community can be, as well as what things someone feels you should be very, very scared about. Right. All of a sudden, I'm very happy that I asked you that question. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in Zen, there's this analogy of the bull with a ring through its nose. And of course, if if livestock has a ring through its nose, it's because that's how you lead it. And in Zen, they're always saying that you want to learn how to be a bull with no ring through its nose. You don't want to be led around, led astray. And in, you know, in a, in a, in a political culture where there's a lot of emotional appeal, where there's a lot of, frankly, propaganda and demagoguery from one side or another that's trying to persuade you to vote a certain way, to support a certain system, a certain party, a certain platform – I really want voters to try to be bulls without rings through their noses so that they're not led around, that uh, that they have good information and that they approach them with good, independent thought and questioning. Sure. So at this point, we're we're still in dimming. What prompted the move to the uh, Las Cruces Sun News? Oh, they asked me to come. I was at the Deming headlight for a, for about a year, and uh, Sylvia Ulloa had moved on, and Lucas Pierman was was uh, the news director, and he currently is the news director, and he invited me to uh, come on over to the Las Cruces Sun News. Uh, another younger reporter took over at the Deming headlight for a time, and I moved over to the Sun News initially reporting on schools and businesses, but my curiosity kept getting the better of me and I kept looking into other things. And so uh, I became this sort of reporter without a clear beat. <laughs> was, you you I, kept, kept getting amused by other things. I kept getting amused by various <laughs> things and 
taking calls that that people where people said no one else will talk to me. So I'm like, well, tell me your story. And someone at some point, I have no idea who did this, put me on the website as an investigative reporter. So I thought, oh, maybe I'm an investigative reporter. So I started <laughs> trying to investigate things and, and trying it to was, be an investigator. So, you know, it was your license to investigate. Yeah, I, well, you know, they're giving me a paycheck. I got to do something. And uh, <laughs> we got we were able to, you know, Gannett allowed us to hire some reporters. And so there were now there were reporters on the traditional beats like business and education. So I, was like, I had to do something. I was doing some statewide reporting for a while. Uh, I was kind of the Sun News's COVID-19 reporter through the pandemic and uh yeah, you know, I kept writing statewide stories because I wanted to know about things going on at Santa Fe, convinced them to let me go to Santa Fe a few times to report on the lawmakers and the rascals that hang around our state house. And <laughs> money got tight, so I couldn't do that anymore. So I just did some investigative reporting. And then I decided that there were some municipalities in our county, like uh, Anthony and Sunland Park that had been neglected. So I just started going to those meetings and filing stories. And Lucas would run them. And so really, it's what the heck was my job? I was just kind of a, a general assignment reporter at a higher tier uh, pursuing what I thought was compelling and interesting and also looking for communities that didn't really have a light on them. Right. Uh, and in that same regard, there are also communities where the residents don't have much of a voice. Oh, no. Or they, you know, they might show up to meetings and they might talk, but there's nobody from outside the community. This is a, a, a lesson I'm actually taking with me to the Deming headlight, which is that, you know, one purpose of what we do is to provide vetted information to the communities to share information and help uh, bond communities together. But another thing that we do is we tell a community's story beyond their county line or state line to an audience outside the community. Because in a place like southern New Mexico, we're trying to get economic development. We're trying to get investment. We're trying to get service providers and businesses to invest in communities. And we have to be able to tell our story to lawmakers to investors, to marketing representatives, to tell stories about our community so that people see the potential areas of development and not just the stories about crime and blight and struggle, right? Right. What would you say are some of the most memorable stories you've covered so far? One of the things that happened right away when I got to the Sun News was I took a call from a woman who said, I hope you'll just listen to me because I have tried reaching TV. I've tried reaching newspapers and nobody will take my will take my story on. I was going to say my case on like I'm a private detective. <laughs> but but it was like this woman just really wanted someone to hear her out. And I said, sure, what, what, what happened? And she ended up telling me this horrific story about how her husband – who had been an NMSU, a New Mexico State University administrator, uh, had died very suddenly. And the university had a pension plan through the state's educators pension board 
but that she was being denied her husband's pension because there was a piece of paper missing. Literally, a, a piece of paper was missing from the file. And so the ERB, the Educators the, yeah. Retirement Board, ERB. would not, yeah, they would not, they would not release this money, which was, you know, which she thought was probably valued at close to a million dollars. Like it was several hundred thousand dollars. And she needed it because her husband had passed on. She had muscular sclerosis and was faced with having to return to what she used to do for a living long ago, which was painting. And when you're in your 60s and you have MS, you don't need to be climbing ladders and scaffolds and painting walls. And so she was really just up in arms about what to do. Uh, she just seemed to have exhausted all of her administrative remedies. So wrote a story about that. And within weeks, um, lawmakers, the, the story landed during New Mexico's legislative session. There's a limited window of 30 to 60 days when lawmakers are actually in the roundhouse legislating. And so the story landed with just enough time for lawmakers to scramble and pass a fix to the state law that fixed the bureaucratic slip up that had happened here. Subsequent to our story appearing, we also found out that uh, hundreds, if not thousands of other employees at New Mexico State and other institutions checked their retirement files and found that there was also a similar glitch. And this particular form was missing from you know, many, many people's files. And so they would have been in the same situation or their rather their survivors would have been in the same position. And so we headed off a, a tsunami of of people in this predicament, got the law changed and uh, really saved this uh, saved this woman who is still alive and, and sends me notes from time to time, um, you know, thanking me for helping her. But that's what we do. Right. That's these are the things that we're there to do. Yeah. What other stories stand out? Oh, my goodness. I uh, so I, I, you know, I live in Deming. And when I was still in Deming, I did a, I went down to Columbus, this border village, which every year has a remembrance of Pancho Villa. Pancho Villa is a very complicated figure because he led or ordered a raid on the town of Columbus during the Mexican Revolutionary time. Right. And uh, so on one side of the border, he's remembered as this guy who killed a lot of Americans. On the other side of the border, he's remembered as this kind of revolutionary hero who like, know, a, like a folk roots. Yeah. Oh, very much so. Very much so. And I love telling stories about the sort of dual judgments about Pancho Villa. There's a Pancho Villa impersonator who regularly comes through the village and he paid a visit to Columbus Elementary School in full costume, including an ammunition belt wrapped around his chest. <laughs> oh. He arrived oh, as it no. happened, right? I know it's the, it's the 21st century. It's a little different now. And as it happened, he showed up on a day when earlier that morning they had had to go on lockdown because of shots fired in the general area of the school. And so they were no longer on lockdown, but the ammunition belt was, was not cool. The prop guns was, were not cool. And so the principal oh. said, you're going to have to take those off. And so I actually did a video and a story about Pancho Villa showing up at an elementary school and the principal disarming him. 
I had never heard that story as long oh, as the video is still out there. Yeah. If you, if you do some Googling, you can still find the video I did. I got, I got the, the video footage of the principal and this befuddled Pancho Villa being disarmed by a school principal. <laughs> oh, you know, in, in today's climate, that is to say it's distasteful is um, it's, it's entirely tone deaf, you know? Right. But remember, this Pancho Villa impersonator came up from, oh, gosh, I mean, I, I think maybe uh, Chihuahua City or, you know, you know, it's just, it's just it's different. It's it's there's a, yeah. there's a our reaction to something like that is probably different than I, I don't think it occurred to him. <laughs> and now I want to talk about some other work that you've done that has been particularly impactful, especially when it comes to simply raising awareness. And I'm, I'm thinking about uh, reporting you've done on guardianship issues and things like that. Right. So um, one story I had done was about uh, guardianship uh, of the court appointed guardians and conservators. There've been some horror stories that predate my time in journalism in New Mexico about somebody who came to trim trees or something at a home where an elderly person lived and went to an attorney and got a court petition to be appointed emergency custodian and conservator and getting at people's finances and that way. And there's just there were some holes in the law that allowed some pretty outrageous abuses of the system. And uh, one story that came to light was about a rather well-known and revered educator here in Las Cruces, Doris Hamilton by name, who uh, was living on her own in her you know, advanced years. Her uh, grown son at the time was living in New York um, where he had a career. And Someone got themselves appointed, you know, uh, her custodian and the son had to come back from New York to try to take responsibility for his mom and their property and was faced with a court fight that is actually uh, that went on for quite some time. And we did a story about that, which then got further coverage from other outlets that dug even deeper into the system and the need for some reforms. And lawmakers have tried to move some improvements forward. It's it's a slow process and, and, and it's a very controversial subject. And I think that's probably going to be ongoing and there'll be more stories to come about that. And um, oh, gosh, and there's something else, too. Oh, I all, well, yes. So we did a story about a um, court appointed what is the term that they use? Parent coordinator. And this is somebody who gets appointed by a court in New Mexico and in some other states as well. If, uh, let's say, you and your spouse get divorced and it's contentious and you have children and the two parents are having trouble getting along, you have a, a parent coordinator who has certain powers to facilitate and mediate arrangements for custody and how, how the parents will co-parent while the divorce is in proceeding. They're not supposed to be deciding who gets custody of the child when or all that. They're supposed to be facilitating communication so that things stay peaceful while they're 
coming to a judge. Right. Uh, a judge if, would decide that. And then this coordinator mm-hmm. would make sure that the judge's orders were followed and followed hopefully smoothly and without incident. Which often is the case. But what has happened is that some judges have treated the parent coordinators differently and some have given them a lot of power, basically given them powers of the court. You know, And so that has in one particular case, there were some questions about a parent coordinator who um, has been active in Las Cruces in southern New Mexico. And so we did a story about the people trying to get this particular parent coordinator removed from their cases. And that was a doorway into talking about how much discretion judges have to give sometimes a surprising amount of power to a parent coordinator who does not necessarily have a degree in law, does not necessarily need to have a degree in in counseling. I will say that parent coordinators do have a professional association. They talk to each other and there are some professional standards that good parent coordinators try to keep up. But there's nothing in statute that really mandates. There's not like you can't lose your license like a doctor can for malpractice. Right. Right. And so it's uh, it's it, there's a lot of room there. Do you, uh, do you have to have a license? No. <laughs> but you do to be a barber. Yes. Okay. I mean, barbers cut ha- barbers cut hair. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a it's an area of expertise that is fairly new. That is one thing, and so there's not a whole lot in statute that really uh, paints the lanes that parent coordinators must stay within. And some parent coordinators honestly prefer it that way uh, for reasons that are not you know, hard to guess and, and that are understandable, right? Like they would much rather regulate themselves than be regulated. And that that's, you know, not, you know, that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. But if you have a bad actor in the role of a parent coordinator, they can do a lot of damage. Sure. Is there something that stands out as being especially meaningful about your time working in Las Cruces? Las Cruces is New Mexico's second largest city. And there's this really remarkable divide between the north and the south parts of our state. And the southern part of New Mexico, and I really think of Las Cruces as sort of being in the center of this southern New Mexico region where there's a lot of important development happening. Of course, that encompasses our length of the U.S.-Mexico border. But there's also a lot of communities that have very little in the way of essential infrastructure for our century. Broadband, roads, you know, water services, you know, um, and a lot of communities that are kind of left in the dark. And that really makes it it makes it very You know, it really presents a challenge to full human flourishing and independence. Right, right. And that's something that really should be explored every chance that we get, because when you shine light on that, then, you know, that is how more investment is found. (laughs) The, The energy to invest is found and things start to change. 
That's exactly right. That's part of our public service mandate, right? It's it's part of the part of the non-commercial part of what we is that what we do and why it matters. So how did the opportunity to return to the headlight as the paper's editor in chief come about? So the Las Cruces Sun News and the Deming Headlight were both uh, owned by Gannett. Gannett is a company that owns it's a couple of hundred newspapers across the country. Plus, yeah. yeah, including several in New Mexico. We're talking Alamogordo News, Rudoso News, uh, Carlsbad Current, Argus, Las Cruces, Sun News, Farmington Daily Times, Deming Headlight. Right. If I left any out like you know, the, the um, Silver City Sun News uh, until very recently. They actually started the Silver City Sun News in 1996 to compete with the Silver City Daily Press, which is this revered old newspaper in Silver City. Um, And so Silver City for a while was a two newspaper town. Good on them. And um, Gannett, of course, was I mean, Deming Headlight got passed around between various conglomerates, Digital First Media, Media News Group, eventually Gannett was the owner, and then Gannett merged with Gatehouse Media. And Deming Headlight, this paper that's been in existence since 1881, was a very small holding in a huge pile of newspapers owned by Gannett, which, of course, their flagship is the USA Today. Deming Headlight started to look a lot more like USA Today. Gannett was doing this kind of standardization of their print products as they move forward with a business model that really puts Internet presentation first and, frankly, is about phasing out print newspapers, which indeed may be the future. But I think in small communities like Deming, these are the communities that are going to hold on to print newspapers for uh, the longest amount of time because Luna County, not everybody has internet, not everybody has reliable internet. There's still a desire and a need for a print product that can get passed around and distributed. And so uh, Deming Headlight began to, I think, suffer under this business model that was about something very different and not necessarily what the community wants or needs. It's more like what Gannett's shareholders and investors were thinking about. And so the Deming Headlight suffered to the point where there was no staff left. They, because Gannett is heavily in debt because of its merger with Gatehouse, that's public news that's been reported publicly. So I'm, you know, I'm uh, not, not they're, they're telling they're tales out of school. I'm not telling tales out of school. They're they're liquefying. They they have they have uh, a, an astonishing amount to, of debt to manage. So they're liquidating a lot of assets. They're selling some papers back to local community owners. Great. That's good news. Um, what happened with the headlight was they auctioned off the Deming Headlights building that had been its home since oh for 50 years or so. And they finally laid off its final staff member and the paper was being put together entirely remotely and the community noticed and they did not like this. And um, they got a taste of what life would be like without a local paper and local journalists reporting on it. And Nicholas Seidel, who is the owner of the Silver City Independent Publishing Company, they published the Silver City Daily Press. Mr. Seibel acquired the Silver City Sun News and quietly chloroformed it and <laughs> welcomed, 
welcomed those subscribers into the Daily Press family. And he also purchased the Deming Headlight with the idea of maintaining that as an independent local publication. And this happened right as Gannett was entering a period of layoffs and trying to prompt people to consider voluntary severance and furloughs. Um, you yourself, Damien, you're going to have to take five unpaid days off in December. That's right. As our most employees of Gannett. And right around this time, you know, Nick talked to me about what he was up to. And I decided to make the move. And I still live in Deming. And it just seemed like the right thing to do to perhaps take a small pay cut and come back and help lead my community's newspaper. It's such an important job. Um, tell us a little bit about the staff that you're working with and, and your plans for the paper. Well, I mentioned earlier in this conversation, Bill Armendariz, <laughs> that 40 year plus veteran who was my editor, go, who, you know, go down to Columbus. And said, yeah. Get lost, kid. Yeah. That guy. He, of course, had been uh, involuntarily retired and, and feeling pretty low about it. Bill, I, I, he, he would say this himself. Bill is a sports writer and he, that's what he loved doing. He loves telling stories about games. He loves bragging on kids. He loves bragging on coaches and, and really telling those stories as community stories. That's, that's his passion. And I got the opportunity to call him up and say, Bill, I'm now the boss of the Deming Headlight, and I'd like to hire you back as our sports writer. What do you say? And he was giddy as a kid. He did just, a, did he a backflip. He, uh, I, I, I can't confirm that. But <laughs> <laughs> he's pretty darn happy. And uh, so he's back. He's covering games. He's turning in stories. He's finding he's like a cub reporter. He's filing surprise stories that I didn't even tell him to you know, go get. He's he's just thrilled to be back. And the community knows him and trusts him. And so really, it's it's a boon to the paper to have him back. We have a general manager. We have somebody staffing our new office because, of course, we don't have a building anymore. We didn't inherit a paperclip from Gannett. <laughs> uh, so we're. We're starting from scratch. We are printing our newspaper twice a week in a tabloid format, which means it's a smaller size than the broadsheet newspaper. We've revived a masthead that dates from about 1902. And um, so it's and a, a sharp, sharp looking one at that. Well, thank you. It's 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 intended to remind people of the paper's history, but it's also new. And we're putting out a 16 to 20 page newspaper twice a week. And we also have a website, of course. And the website is independent of the newspaper. Honestly, the news, the website is really for breaking news and some of the statewide political stories that amuse me. And, uh, and again, <laughs> coming, coming back to that. All, oh, of course. You know, it's, it's about what amuses me and also ways to tell our story beyond Luna County's boundary. Algernon. I guess one last question. What are your, your plans as you look forward? Well, I got to learn how to be an editor. I, I, there's no, uh, there's no, I mean, can, can you, how do you, how do you edit a newspaper, Damien? I don't know how to do this. <laughs> well, well, I got uh, hired to do it. They seem <laughs> to think I know what I'm doing and I have no idea what I'm doing. So I have to figure out what I'm doing. 
Step that one. Be, that would be key. That's step one. Um, I would like the paper to be successful enough that we could bring on another reporter or at least have regular freelancers so that, you know, it's 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 more voices, right? It's more voices and more storytellers. And and if those people can be local, all the better so that, you know, you have the community learning how to investigate and tell the truth about itself. Yeah, I think that sounds fantastic. What do you want to add that we haven't talked about? You know, I think that, you know, I think that part of this story really is about different business models for the news as an industry. And there's a lot of we haven't figured this out. I mean, there are a lot of promising experiments with nonprofit organizations reporting news. Gannett, of course, is a very large capitalist organization that owns a lot of different kinds of businesses, and it's complex. And I think that sometimes those complexities conflict with what people who do news need to do, right? And now we're a small, independent, for-profit company trying to sustain a print newspaper in a small community and the the compromises that we'll have to make in order to keep that afloat are going to inform what we do and there's a lot of variety and so i think we need to think about the future of news as a as an ecosystem of organizations that really help each other and fill in the gaps yeah i think you're exactly right and you know one of the things when you, you talk about that large corporate model like Gannett, there are benefits to it in terms of sharing resources. For instance, during your time at the paper, you were able to go up to Santa Fe and cover the legislature, and that could be shared around the state to, to you know places like Farmington and Carlsbad that on their own might not be able to send their own reporter. Exactly. I mean, there's a there's a there's a dual there's a dual nature here, which is one, the way that Gannett has its newspapers networked. It's really easy to collaborate. I mean, I could collaborate with people in Guam. You right. know? I mean, and we did have some of these long distance collaborative projects where I was working with reporters from all over the United States. That's a boom. That's great. That's a value add. Another thing this does, however, is that it allows the corporation to reduce the workforce, especially local workforces. As more and more things can be done remotely, it becomes possible. For several years, the Silver City Sun News was produced and distributed in Silver City despite not having a single local reporter or editor employed and did not even have an office uh, for the last several years of its life. It was this disembodied thing. And I mean, you can judge that harshly or not, but I think that, you know, there's that there's that dual thing where on the one hand, it allows reporters to do a lot of things. But what we also are doing is we're making do with having less. And uh, and I think that has to be factored into the analysis as well. Yeah, yeah, I totally hear you. And I see where you're coming from. Algernon, you've only been gone for a week, but we already miss you, and our loss is most certainly Deming's gain. Uh, it's been fun catching up. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, thanks so much, Damien. I, I miss you guys, too. I miss actually, I've been missing being in a newsroom for a long time, and 
I remember a time when when we were all together in the newsroom as a boisterous bunch of contentious, uh, <laughs> contentious and argumentative journalists, and it was great. And now that I'm still kind of mostly by myself in a in an empty storefront because our furniture hasn't arrived yet, I still miss it, and I miss you guys. But you know, we're we're still cousins, and we'll be working together. And yeah, so. Yeah, well, maybe someday I'll be hiring you all away and you'll all be working <laughs> for me. Ha ha. Ha ha. Algernon, thanks again. Thanks again for uh, talking to us today. My pleasure, Damien. And don't behave yourself too well. Oh, don't worry about that. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Reporter's Notebook. We also have a newsletter sharing reporters' stories about, well, about how we report stories. You can find all of our articles and the rest of our reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. A huge thanks goes out to Algernon for joining us this week. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and many of the places you find your favorite podcasts. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me. You can also find all our local reporting brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in Las Cruces at www.lcsun-news.com. For all of us at The Sun News, thank you for the privilege of your time.